So I want to do a little questionnaire uh, before we get started. So we can be honest in church, right? Yes? Yes, this is family, okay? So I'm going to ask you a few questions, and if that's you, you stick your hand up in the air. So here we go. So if the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is roll over, check your phone for some social media notification or go into some form of social media, if that's you, put your hand up. Okay, awesome. Uh, Next one. If you need to go to the toilet, and the first thing that you do is not check if there's toilet paper, but find where your phone is and then go to the toilet, is that anyone here? Yes, okay. It's like half the room. Awesome. If you are at work, your colleagues may be around or your boss is in the office, and as soon as they step out of the office and you're by yourself and you're on a computer, you immediately put... You go on to Facebook. Is that anyone here? Come on, let's be real in church. As soon as the boss steps out the office, come on, guys. You can be real in church. Okay, there we go. I appreciate your honesty, sir. Thank you. Is there anyone who's been on social media since stepping into the building this evening? Yeah? Anyone on it right now? No, okay, that's good. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, yeah, unless you're tweeting me or posting a nice picture of me, like preaching like that and getting my good side. Um, so the title of my talk tonight is Social, Social Media is the Devil. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. I, I don't have a title. Um, it's just social media. But I got some stats and some history of social media, so you've got to follow with me quickly. And this is just to explain to you guys and show you how quickly um, something that that has become part of our life, that we literally cannot go to the toilet without it, um, just exploded in the last 16 years or so. So here's a quick history of social media. In 2002, Jonathan Abrams launched something called Friendster. It was almost like the original uh, Facebook. It was like the hipster Facebook, right? And he declined an offer of $30 million from Google uh, in 2003, a year later. 2003, Tom Anderson and Chris DeWolf, I think that's such a cool surname, DeWolf, um, he launched something called MySpace. Who remembers MySpace? Yeah, all the millennials, yeah. Uh, Two years later, News Corp acquires MySpace for $580 million. Uh, Another six years later, in 2011, Justin Timberlake buys it for $35 million. Um, Also in 2003, LinkedIn launches. Um, Dan Nye, not to be confused with Bill Nye, uh, is the new CEO and LinkedIn reaches 16 million users. In 2011, it goes public and its shares prices instantly double overnight. In 2004, the big one, we've all seen the movie, Mark Zuckerberg, he launches Facebook. So initially, it's intended as a university student directory, but in 2006, it opens it to the world and not to just, not to just universities. And it has a one billion Billion, not million, one billion offer from Google in 2006, two years after he started it, which he declines. Are you crazy? You crazy, Mark? But he's not, because a year later in 2007, Mark's not so crazy, because a year later, Facebook is valued at $15 billion, three years after it was created. In 2011, Facebook goes public and it hits 1 billion users. In 2006, uh, Twitter launches. It's based on the idea of you have 140 character, it's a microblogging platform, you have 140 characters to uh, post something where everybody is able to reach or see your post on, on the site. Um, they coined the hashtag, 
They, they also use hashtags as a way to see what is trending. Uh, trending becomes a thing that other platforms pick up on and start to use. And many people at this point, they start turning to trending topics as their customizable feeds instead of traditional news media. So Twitter kind of changed the game for traditional media houses, for newspapers, uh, television news. Um, so most people nowadays, they get their breaking news off Twitter. I know I do. Um, in 2000, don't judge me. In 2007, <laughs> uh, David Karp founds Tumblr. Just, let me work this out, four years later, Yahoo acquires Tumblr for $1.1 billion. In 2009, Jan Kuhn, together with Brian Action, that just sounds, man, like I could just be an action star, Brian Action, uh, they create WhatsApp. Just five years later, Facebook acquires WhatsApp for $19 billion. $19 billion. And it has 600 million active users, and that was four years ago. It's grown. In 2010, Instagram launches. In 2012, two years later, Facebook acquires Instagram for $1 billion. In 2013, they reach 150 million users. In 2011, Google Plus launches. They have 2 million users in the first two weeks. Google Plus. In 2012, a year later, just a year later, they've jumped to 90 million users. And in 2011, Snapchat is created by Evan Spiegel and Bobby Murphy. Two years later, they have 150 million snaps a day, and the company is valued at more than $2 billion. The point in all of this is, if you want to make money, start a social... No, no. <laughs> uh, but the point is, I want, to, I want to show you guys like this incredible explosive growth that has happened with social media. I mean, some of us, we, uh, some of us are a lot, a lot older, and we've never grown up with this. Like, technology is so foreign to us. It's, it's come at a later part in our life, and we have trouble with um, adapting to it and uh, adopting it. Some of us, we, we were literally born into it. It's all we know. And some of us, like me, I, I was maybe in my teenage years when it started exploding, and it's something that I had to learn, but it's become part of my life. You know, there's 2.3 billion people on social media today. 2.3 billion. That's roughly 30% of the world's population are on social media today. Get this. People will spend more than five years total on social media by the end of their life. That's what scientists have worked out. Five years of your life on social media. Um, if that's not enough to make you rethink things, I don't know what is. And they break it down. So they've broken it down, looking at stats and over time. Uh, you'll spend one year, 10 months on YouTube. One year, seven months on Facebook. One year, two months on Snapchat. About eight months on Instagram. And about 18 days on Twitter. I'm like, man. That is a lot of time. It is. So it's something that's exploded over the last decade or so. Um, and... It's actually created new ways of thinking. Um, it's, you've got to catch this. Like in 2000, Y2K, when that happened, like none of this stuff was really around. So there's such things as, it's even got a name. It's called cyber emotional intelligence. It's, it's like a new, um, a new emotional intelligence that we have to teach young people. And what it is is this, it's, it's something we need to teach young people. With the rise of cyberbullying, we literally have to teach children a way of thinking that the world has never seen. We literally have to teach young people that when you say this online, when you post this, when you do this, it makes somebody feel like that. Why? Because they're growing up in a culture where 
person-to-person, face-to-face interaction is, it, it, it doesn't happen a lot. So we, we literally have to teach young people a brand new way of thinking that the world has never, ever seen. They've never seen it before. So it's this incredible, um, it's just this incredible, I don't even know what you call it. It's just this giant that has consumed our lives that the world has never seen, that the church, I believe, wasn't ready for. <laughs> and we need to start talking about it. We need to. We need to, parents, we need to be speaking to our kids about this. We need to be putting boundaries in place. We need to be um, teaching them, giving them an understanding of not just, no, you cannot go on Facebook, but an understanding of why I cannot go on Facebook or why I cannot go onto Snapchat, why I cannot do this stuff. And I might, I might come across like the, uh, the prophet of doom. Um, but my, my talk's in two parts. I want to talk to you guys a little bit about like the negativities of social media, but then I want to talk about how social media can actually be positive and what we can do in order to influence the world with social media. All right. So my earliest introduction to social media, I was in about grade 10, uh, grade 11, and um, I got into MySpace. You guys remember MySpace? I saw some of you put your hands up. I think every millennial was, MySpace was their first major social media platform they got onto. Um, it was a big thing, and I signed up. I went myspace.com, my little, well, not my little, my massive desktop computer, signed up. Um, and the coolest thing that happened, as soon as I signed up, I got this little um, notification in my inbox, and just went boop, boop. I was like, whoa, that's cool. So I clicked on it, and this guy named Tom. You guys remember Tom? Yeah? Tom, that weird guy at his computer with that face, um, he, he messaged me. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I signed up to this MySpace thing, and I've immediately got a friend. And Tom was really friendly. He, like, he messaged me, and he said, hey, Sean, like, welcome to MySpace. How are you doing? I uh, hope you have a great time. I was like, this is great. <laughs> I signed up to MySpace, and I got a new friend. You know, and um, for me, I'd, I'd been uh, trying out chat rooms, which was something that happened before uh, social media, and you'd You'd literally log on, you'd create a, create a username, and you'd, um, you'd literally get into these little rooms, cyber rooms, and you'd talk to people from across the world. Um, so I was used to it. And what you would do is in, in those chat rooms, you would say, hey, how's it going? And you would say, ASL. Does anyone remember that? ASL. Anyway, it's age, sex, location. That's what you ask them. ASL. And they would say, hey, I'm 16, uh, male, female, from wherever. So I'm like, oh, cool. So Tom messaged me. I was like, and I replied to him. <laughs> like, this Tom seems friendly. So I replied. I was like, hey, Tom, I'm so happy to be on MySpace. I'm like, thanks for sending me a message. Uh, whereabouts are you located? And I got this message back from Tom. And that's when I realized that Tom, though he was a real person, his account was actually controlled by a robot. And I got the most generic response from Tom, and it broke my little heart. I was like, oh, man. He said, hey, Sean, this is how you use Facebook. I mean, how you use MySpace. You can go to this menu, this menu. And I was like, oh, oh, Tom, you're breaking my heart. I had a friend. I thought we were tight. Um, Anyway, that was my first introduction to uh, social media. And from there, all of my friends started moving across to Facebook. Yeah, so there's MySpace and then Facebook. So in about 2005, six, all of my friends, I noticed, start going across to Facebook. And something inside of me, I'm a little bit uh, competitive, a little bit stubborn. (laughs) I 
I didn't want to go across. I was like, no, you guys can do that. I found my space. This is, this is me. Like, I can, I can create my own wall. I can put my own music on. Like, it's great. Leave me out of this. Um, and slowly, more and more of my friends started to move over. My family, my sisters were on there. My best friend moved over. And I was like, no, I'm adamant. I will never, ever move across to Facebook, man. I could have been like a MySpace ambassador. Like even though Tom had like cut my heart, I was still like fighting for this guy and his company. I was like, I am going to never go across to Facebook. But what happened is this. After a while, at some point, everyone I knew had moved across to Facebook. And at some point, popularity won my heart. And it changed my perspective, it changed my outlook, and it influenced my decision. So it was still my decision to move over, and I made the decision to move over to Facebook. It was my decision to make, but popularity influenced me in a powerful, powerful way. And you see, this thing of influence is so incredibly powerful when it comes to social media. See, because if enough people do it, it can sway my decision. Popularity plays a huge part in social media. And I just want to say this. Just because something is popular does not mean it's true. Just because enough people say, say it, believe it, it does not make it true. And I'll get into that a bit later. See, but it can have a powerful effect on the way that we see the world or what we think about ourselves. You see, and it looks like this. It looks like, I don't have enough friends. My life could be so much more interesting. My friends' lives are perfect. Mine sucks. Or also, like, when food comes in real life, it looks just so boring. (laughs) My wedding could have been so much cooler. And another group chat. Kill me. (laughs) Kill me. But these, these platforms, they can influence us in such a powerful way. See, and businesses know this. They know how easily influenced we are. See, it's in a world that's full of so much choice, so many options, like we can pick and choose what we want. There's, there's endless options nowadays. And it's so hard for a consumer to know what to buy. So what people say is attention has become the most valuable commodity in business nowadays. If, if they can grab your attention just for a few minutes, they know they can make a sale. See, this is actually how social media platforms were created. And I did a bit of research. Um, So the goal behind all that they do is to keep you on their platform. That's the goal of any social media platform is to keep you on their platform. They say this, how can we make this platform as addictive as possible? So I got a quote from Sean Parker. He was the guy that Justin Timberlake played in that movie. Um, He was the former Facebook director. And he says this, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains, you know? In the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, to really understand it, that thought process was, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious, conscious, can never get that word, conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a dopamine hit every once in a while because somebody liked or commented on a photo or post or whatever. And and that's going to get you to contribute more content, and that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. It's exactly the kind of thing a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting vulnerability in human psychology. I'm like, you've got to catch this. Like, it's not just just a business that they came up with. It is. 
But at the core of their business strategy and what they're going after is that. How can we hook you and keep your attention for as long as possible? I'm not throwing my, uh, my beautiful wife, Kelly. She's here tonight somewhere. I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. But <laughs> um, sometimes I'll be reading a book or playing Xbox or whatever it is. And um, she, she says, babe, I'm going to go to bed early. I think I'm going to go and read a book. So I'm like, cool, babe. I'll, I'll see you in the bed later. And um, about an hour later, I'll come through. And I'll find my wife lying on her bed looking at her phone, she puts the phone down and she says, babe, I just wasted the last hour of my life. <laughs> I feel terrible, but she's hooked. There's no hope for her. No, just kidding. <laughs> she is. But you've got to understand that that is the, it's the ideology of these businesses, that they want to hook your attention. They want to hook you in. And I want to give you guys a little, little science lesson. So, um, Pretend I'm the teacher. You guys are in class right now. Um, scientists used to believe that the brain was rigid. So they believed that at, at a certain point in your life, at a certain age, uh, your brain couldn't change. Your thought patterns wouldn't change. They would stay. Um, you won't change much, basically. Uh, but what they've discovered and what they believe now, it's more like plastic. And it's more plastic than we think. So they say that the brain is actually incredibly malleable. It has circuits. And it has circuits that can be rewired. Uh, through repetition and through rewarding. Can you just put that um, slide up there, Taylor? So this is how it works. This is a positive feedback loop. This is what Sean Parker was talking about. It looks like this. Every time you post something at the top there, every time you use social media, every time you get a like or a follow or a comment, every time this happens, your brain gets hit with something called dopamine. And dopamine is the happy hormone. It's the, it's the chemical responsible for reward and pleasure within our brains. And something about dopamine is if you get enough of it, over time, it becomes incredibly, incredibly addictive. It's the chemical messenger of happiness. So when we post, when we, we post every comment, every like, every message, every new follower, um, we, we receive attention. And we love this attention so much our brains, see our brains, they love to learn and they learn to love the attention that it receives. And then what happens is it gets a little dopamine hit. And because of that dopamine hit, it feels good. And then what we do is we want to use it more and more. And it's almost like a, a vicious, I don't know why they call it a positive feedback loop because it's not very positive. Um, but it's this, this loop that goes on and on and on. And as we repeat the cycle, we strengthen this connection and this addiction to our brain. See, because social media provides immediate rewards with very little effort required. It's like the millennial dream right there. <laughs> it is. <laughs> like every millennial's dream right there. Like, how can I do the least amount of work and get the most amount of reward in the end? I mean, that, that's why so many millennials like soak up social media. That's it. I mean, they are the generation that took it on. There's a reason for that. And what happens is your brain begins to rewire itself and you start to, you desire this, those stimulations. You begin to crave more of these neurological, excite, exciting feelings that happen in your brain after each interaction. I mean, it sounds a bit like a drug to me, right? If you guys know who Simon Sinek is, I mean, I literally could have preached a message with all the stuff from Simon Sinek, but he has so much stuff on this. I love one of these points. He says, why do we have age restrictions for um, alcohol and for driving a car 
Something that if we give to a minor or somebody who's underage, that they could take it and just so recklessly use it and hurt other people's lives. Why, why would we put age restrictions on that? But when it comes to something like social media or cell phones, we say, hey, 10-year-old, here's a phone. <laughs> no blocks, no nothing. Go ahead and use it. And you've got to understand that like, it's actually an addiction. It is an addiction. They've done tests on grade eights. And they took them off social media for a week. And what happened is these grade eights start to experience withdrawals. And I'm not talking about uh, being a little ratty and upset. I'm talking about the same. They found the same symptoms and withdrawals of somebody who, would, who had come off cold turkey from addictive drugs. They found the same type of withdrawal symptoms within these teenagers just for a week of not being on social media. They did a study with another uh, female grade eights, only females, and they found that the average eighth grader checks social media 111 times a day. 111. Now work that out. If you're awake for 12 hours of a day, that's every six minutes they're checking their social media. I'm like, man, that's just crazy. Um, Denzel Washington, you guys know Denzel? Yes. You don't know him, but you know his movies. Um, in an interview, he said this. He was asked, in this age of social media, what would you say to young people? And he said this. I can't do it in his voice. I'll just do it in mine. Turn it off. That's what I would say. It's hard for young people now because they are addicted. If you don't think you're addicted, and I'm talking about anyone from the highest to the lowest, if you don't think you're addicted, then see if you can turn it off for a week. It got real quiet in here, didn't it? It's a tool, so we should use it. God has blessed us with free will, but now it's free will magnified. It's free will on steroids. You're free to go in any direction you want. It's not the enemy. It's just a reflection of our own free will. We all want to be liked, but now we want to be liked by 16 million. And now some of us will do anything to be liked. We used to do anything to be liked, but it was for the person in front of you. Now it's to be liked by 16 million people that we don't know. We have to ask ourselves, what is the long-term, if not the short-term effect of too much information? I mean, we, like, we are so addicted as a culture to this. Like, I, I, I firmly actually believe that it's become an idol within our society. I've been to India and I've, I've walked through the streets and you see the, the idols on the side of the road and it's these little um, objects. Like an idol doesn't have to look like that. In our Western culture, I totally believe that this has become an idol. Parents, there's guards you can put on your phone. I want to say to you, know what your children are looking at. Um, talk about limits. Have actual FaceTime. You know, there were studies done, um, again, about dinner time. When you all sit around the table as a family and have dinner time, and the scientific study was done, and it said family time around a table does more overall growth in, any, in a child than any sports, academic, or musical activity could. Like there's so much value in just sitting, being present, putting technology aside, and just being with your family. You know, I found out something great um, on my iPhone the other day. Does anyone have a big iPhone? Because mine's so small, and you guys probably won't see this. Can I use yours, Jules? If you just mind turning it on. I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's a new update that happened with iOS. Um, I'm just going to hold this down. And see the iPhone? Right there. How's this phone work? Okay. <laughs> I've got a much smaller one. If you hold this button here long enough, it does this. And if you go like this, it turns your phone off. 
That would do a lot of you guys a lot of good. Seriously, just turn your phone off. We started to do that at our dinner table. Um, we, we put our phones off, we put them to the side, and we just want to, we ask Aria, and not Asher, because he's so small, and he would just like blow bubbles at us, but <laughs> we, we ask her, hey, how was your day? And it's just amazing to see this little personality that comes out. And sometimes I, I got my phone nearby and, and like work things come up or whatever it is. And I put it, I look to my phone and I look up and Kelly's giving me the stare. I'm like, sorry, babe. And I just put aside. But this, we just realized that there's so much good in the society that we live in that is just so oversaturated with technology that we can just put it aside, turn it off, and just be with people. You know, I listened to a podcast um, the other day, and um, this beautiful quote came up, and it said this. I, don't know if it's... <laughs> I listened to it on Facebook. No, I'm joking. <laughs> is it there, the podcast quote? There it is. Uh, they said this. The guest said, our primary means of communication, what we have the most kind of brain hardware devoted to is reading the nonverbal cues, the body posture, facial expressions of the people we're communicating with. And when we reduce people's identity to text and an image, we think we're having a high-level cognitive conversation. But we're actually, what we're actually doing is, through the media itself, neurologically dehumanizing other people, where we see ourselves as a human with feelings and we see other people as kind of dry information. And it means we don't see the impact of our words, our words have on people. We don't see the emotional response that usually causes us to draw back. And I thought that was great. I read, I was like, that is so, so true, because nowadays confrontation happens over email. Like there, there's there's something that we're missing. Like like when you read the Bible, when you read how much face-to-face -face interaction happens in community, in church, in your life. I'm like, there's so much that we're missing out on. So when we're in each other's company, we learn to dehumanize present company so we can just get on our phones. I mean, I see it all the time with millennials. Like, uh, they, they get together in rooms, and I'm millennial, right? So I'm in on this too. Um, but they get together in rooms, and they're all hanging out together. And after a while, what happens is awkward silence, and whoop, everybody's on their phone for the rest of the night. And then you talk to them afterwards, and they're like, Oh, yeah, you know, I'm just not finding community. Like, no one wants to go deep. Like, it's really, it's really hard. I'm like, that's because you're candy crushing when you're supposed to be talking and interacting with people's faces. Like, stop doing it. Like, seriously? Like, stop it. Like, there, there, there is a depth and something that we're missing as a church and as a culture because we're so addicted to, to, to technology. And I want to make you aware of it, if anything else. Like, it's not bad. Like, it's not bad. As Denzel said, it is not bad. Social media can be used for incredible positives. But we've got to become aware of what it's doing to us. Um, I've got three quick points. And, man, I've got so much to say, but I'm going to speed this right up. Uh, three quick points about how social media affects us personally. The first one is this. Comparison. When it comes to social media, we easily, because of the nature of it, we start to compare ourselves to other people. And I know the feeling when I've posted something and I just wait for that notification to see if people, if people like it, want to comment on it because it validates my worth. But I want to say to you, when you compare, this is what happens. It's, it's a two-way street when it comes to, when it comes to comparison. Um, when it comes to comparison, you, um, it looks like this. Let me explain it. There's a difference between observation and comparison, right? 
An observation would look like this. I look at someone's social media. Oh man, that guy has such, or that girl has such an amazing, incredible ministry. Comparison looks like this. I see the social media person. I'm like, oh, that, that's such an amazing ministry. Like, hey, mine, mine, man, my ministry is like, I don't know if it'll ever be there. I don't know if it'll ever get there. So what you do is you start to perform in order to get there. See, we never post bad stuff on social media. We always post the best. You never see somebody posting a, a selfie where it, you caught it the wrong angle and it looks like you're horribly drunk. Like, you never see that. Like, you don't see those photos on social media. You see the best. The best angle, the best filter, the best lighting. Nothing in between your teeth. Like, like it looks pristine. See, and I want to say to you, what you're seeing on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, it's not the full truth. It's, it's a filtered reality. It, it's that person at their, on their best day. It's that person um, in their best moment. It, it's that person the, every other time that they've prayed for somebody and they've got healed. We never post about the hundreds of other times that we pray for somebody and they don't get healed. You know, like I used to watch a lot, a lot of Todd White and just see the incredible things that he does and, and I love Todd White. But what happens is I started to compare myself to this man because I wasn't doing what Todd was doing. And I would start to beat myself up and, and bring myself down. But when I started to realize that, in, in fact, what I see there is only probably like 5% of Todd's life. Like I don't see the other 95%. I'm, I'm very sure there's times when he prays for people and nothing happens. I'm very sure there's times when he just goes through the run of the mill with his kids, with his wife, and he has to do the washing, he has to do the dishes, all that kind of stuff. But because I'm stuck here and I'm doing the washing, I'm looking after my kids and I see Todd and I'm like, oh, he's doing amazing things for God. I'm doing nothing. It brings me down. The best thing you can do is set yourself free from comparison. And understand, like, what is the journey that God has you on? What are you being faithful with? What are you being faithful with? Because that is what is going to see you grow into your destiny. You know, I, I used to, uh, at my old church, some of our friends, we, uh, we sat around at a table the one night, and um, we had other friends who moved into a township, the middle of the most gang-ridden township in Cape Town. Like, there's bullets flying outside all the time, and Two, two white people, and they moved in. And we were chatting about it the one night, and my friend was just so down. She was like, oh, man, they're just doing such incredible things for God. Like, I'm just working in this other township, working for a, an NGO, and I'm just doing the finances. And I said to her, I was like, stop comparing yourself. Like, what has God called you to? What are you being faithful with? Stop looking at what the other person is doing, because that is not what God has called you to. It's what he's called them to. What has he called you to? What are you being faithful with? Because if you're faithful with, God, with, God, with what God's put in front of you, as the Bible says, faithful with little, all of a sudden you'll start to become faithful with much. That's how you grow. Not by trying to do what the other person's doing. It's by being faithful with what's in front of you. Man, I'm so off topic here. Two other points, and I won't go into them, but we struggle to differentiate between truth and lies. And if you know this, there's a lot of fake news on social media. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. Thanks, Trump. Um, <laughs> see, see, in the past, traditional media houses, they would, they would have to research. They, they would work their hardest to bring you the truth, to bring you a, a well-rounded perspective of a newsworthy story. Nowadays, anybody can post anything in the palm of their hands. 
So we, we have to understand, is this truth or is it lies? Um, we read stories, we see posts. I'm shocked by how many people like uh, retweet or like share stories. And I'm like, oh man, that's, ah, oh, it's my friends and they're clever people. They got a brain. I'm like, that's just not true. I'm like, it's so sad. It's not true. I'm not going to get too much into that, but um, I'll, just, I'll give you this quote by Chamat. Let me get this right. Chamat Palihapatiya. Got that. Palihapatiya. He was a, a former Facebook executive. He says this, We live in a world where it's easy to confuse truth and popularity. You can use money to amplify what you believe and get people to believe that what is popular is truthful and what is not popular is not truthful. We live in a world where someone has differing opinion to us. You can use money through social media platforms to convince your friends, family, yourself that something is true. How do we live in a world where this is popular? I want to say to you, you think. <laughs> you think. God's given you a brain. Before you share, before you take that thing in, before you allow fear to just come in and rule your heart. I'm like, oh, murder rates are just up in our country. It, it was better in the apartheid regime than it is now. I'm like, no. Like, stop spreading fear. Look at the facts. Your facts are actually skewed. It's not even true. You think, and you think about the repercussions of putting it out there, what it means, how it's going to affect other people. Cyber emotional intelligence, that's what it is. Something we have to learn. Um, just one story, there's, um, there's hoaxes that went around WhatsApp recently in India um, of the hoax was that certain men were kidnapping children and um, what happened was the village got word of this hoax, it went around WhatsApp and what happens is these innocent men literally got dragged out of their houses and got lynched because of misinformation that spread through WhatsApp. 28 of them. 28. It's incredible. And like the power of social media, there's so much power for good, but there's also so much power for evil. And that same Chamat guy, he says this, imagine when you take that to the extreme, you know, where bad actors can now manipulate large swaths of people to do anything they want. It's a really, really bad state of affairs. And we compound the problem. We curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs up. And we conflate that with, the, with value and we conflate it with truth. And instead, what it really is is fake, brutal popularity. That's short-term and it leaves you even more and admit it, vacant and empty before you did it. Because then it forces you into this vicious cycle where you're like, what's the next thing I need to do now? Because I need it back. Think about that compounded by two billion people. And think about how people react then to the perceptions of others. It's really bad. Can I have five more minutes? Is that okay? Sorry. I got a third point. Third point is this. The negative way that it affects us is we are not patient anymore. Nicholas Carr, he wrote a book called The Shallows, um, and he says this about not just social media, but about the internet. He says, when we go online, we enter an environment that promotes cursory reading, hurried and distracted thinking, and superficial learning. See, we, we're hit, like when we read a blog, we're hit with hundreds of other links to other blogs. When we watch YouTube, we have 50 other videos in the bar next to us of what else we could be watching. 
When you scroll your finger down, it just shows you new photos you haven't seen before. And there's a generation that's grown up on social media where everything is literally at their fingertips. Instant information, instant gratification, instant messaging, connection. There's like no need to wait for anything anymore. If we post something, instantly we know how many people like it in that moment. There's no need to have patience. In fact, I believe patience is, well, they believe that patience is a negative thing. So I'm just trying to cut out some bits here, but um, there's something called a process that God is into. God, God, like, if you get something tonight, God is really into the process. He is so into the process. And, and you've got to know this process comes with patience. And you cannot divorce the two. If you want the promise, there's a process, but it's going to take patience. Tweet that. <laughs> Don't tweet um, See, But some of us, we want a quick response. We've been, we've been programmed to literally think short term. That's it. We're like, we can't think any, any further than short term. Like, we can only think thoughts that are 280 characters long. That's what we've been programmed into. And we think this is how God works. Like, if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I mean happen right now. And then what happens is it doesn't happen right now because that's not how God always works. He's into a process. I want to say to you, just enjoy the moment. I'm teaching myself this. Like, I got passions, I got desires. I believe like millennials have this incredible desire and passion inside of them to, to change the world and to have some sort of significance. And what happens is because they don't get there when they want to, it's this incredible frustration that um, develops inside of them, which is actually very... Um, unhelpful within the church because they don't want to serve. They don't want to give. They don't want to lay them, their lives down for other people because they've, all, they've made it all about themselves and forgetting the process that it takes. Like God, guys, like God is totally into process. Like it doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. God doesn't say, I'm going to call you to influence nations and change the world. Two weeks later, you're on God TV and everybody knows you. <laughs> and your name is just famous. Like, that's actually what a lot of millennials want. But you've got to understand there's a process. And the process looks like this. And this is something Bill Johnson taught me. And he said, even if the calling that God has for your life isn't actually seen within your lifetime, are you still willing to lay down your life for that cause to see it happen? Even if it happens with your kids or your grandkids, the very thing that God called you to, even if it doesn't happen within your life, but he gives it to your kids and your grandkids because that's how he works. He's a multi-generational God. Would you still lay your life down for it? Like that is challenging. And I feel I'm at the place where I'm like, yes, I can. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Done. I just want to end off with, I got another half of this talk I don't even get to. Um, I just want to hit you with two points and then I'll be done. I promise. And we can go chow. Um, but I want to say there's incredible positives that actually come with social media. Um, let me just get to them. Like there's incredible positives with social media. Uh, we can connect to anyone in the world in no other way that's happened before. There's thousands of businesses that have utilized social business, uh, social media to get the word out and actually grow their businesses. There's online meetings which have turned into marriages. 
It's a beautiful thing through social media. I know a lot of people bash Tinder, but if you look at the statistics, there's actually quite a lot of um, Tinder marriages that happen. I got the stats. 39% of guys on Tinder want some, a serious relationship. 44% of women on Tinder want a serious relationship. Um, over 50% of people on Tinder say they've never had a one-night stand from the dating app. It's got this really bad rap, but it's, it's actually, if you start to see it in a different way, in a different perspective, there's actually something beautiful about it. It's people who've never had serious relationships can find a place where they can meet and hopefully get married. We're 14% go on to get married, and it's rising within Tinder. I'm like, that's great. The ability to rally around causes. You guys remember the, the Egyptian revolution that happened? It all happened through social media where a government that was entrenched got overthrown just through social media alone. So do we throw the baby out of the bathwater? No, we don't. Charity water, I think of charity water as just this beautiful charity that is reaching millions and millions of people that give fresh, clean drinking water to millions of people who would never have the opportunity to get there. Through social media, they literally blew up and became what they are today. It's beautiful. You see, but if we... If we don't understand this, if we don't see with God's eyes, what we'll do is we, we don't understand social media and we don't understand it because it makes us uncomfortable or we don't agree with it. And what we do is we disengage from culture, we disengage from social media and we withhold love from the very thing that we're meant to bring influence and love to. You see, culture is speaking to us all the time through social media. If we don't recognize this and truly listen to culture, we will disengage ourselves from it because of offense or discomfort, and we'll live a monastic life in our cave with the Father, never realizing that true love always runs towards rather than hides from. See, love has no boundaries. It doesn't want anything. It doesn't, it doesn't give in order to get some of us, that's all we've known. We've all, all we've known is boundaries. Keep us safe from the world, Jesus. Pray until you come back and then we can go to be with you. <laughs> we we want to protect ourselves, but you've got to understand. You've got to see with God's eyes what uh, the beauty of it. The church is uncomfortable with this. Okay. I'll say this lastly. The Me Too movement and the Black Lives movement. And I'll say this, like I'm a white male. Those two movements are potentially the most um, offensive movements to me. They have the potential to be the most offensive movements on social media. But you got to get this. Like, it, if I don't sit and listen, like truly listen, not listen to talk and reply and hit them with a comment back. If I, if I don't truly listen to understand and hear some of the stories that come out of it, I'm going to miss the chance to actually show love and bring influence. I'm going to miss it. Because if we disengage because they don't have the same values or ideals as, as us, we miss the chance to show love. Sean Bolt says it so beautifully. You can only have influence of, over that which you love.